I'm almost positive that I'm dying. Don't laugh. That's not a joke. I haven't told my wife yet, and I expect at your age you should be able to keep a secret. I'm away from home working graveyards, checking soft hotels and burned out, punched out apartment complexes. The someday massacre is still somewhere up ahead. I don't know how far. For my father it was close. It was right in front of his face. That's why my stepmother hit his gun. He died with an addiction to palliative opiates and a feeding tube buried in his abdomen. Now I have his gun hidden away in a cabinet and I have a beehive in my colon, or a patch of poison sumac, or maybe my guts are tearing themselves apart in disgust. I'm new to dying. It's my first time, I think. I doubt I'm any better at it than I am at writing poetry, which isn't really saying much. I'm alive now. I'm out till six. Boss's orders. When I'm finished, I'll go home to my wife. I'll listen to her breathe and watch her sleep. The someday massacre will seem far away then, no matter how badly my guts hurt, and it will be enough.
Welcome to Locust Radio, episode 17. Our opening reading uh, was or is forthcoming in Locust Review 9, Someday Massacre, by Mike Leinenweaver, who's a member of the Locust Collective. And I love that poem and over-identify with it in almost every way. To get Locust Review number 9 and the patron half of this episode of Locust Radio, you should go to locustreview.com to subscribe or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash locustreview. Our opening music was Bad Dream by Fat Jack Rabbit from their 2021 album Folk Junk Recital. You can get their music at fatjackrabbit.bandcamp.com. Uh, we'll have more from Fat Jack Rabbit in part two of this episode, along with music in both halves from Omnia Soul, Hans Predator, and Worthless Scarecrow, and more poetry and fiction readings from myself and Leslie Lee. I want to take a moment to let our readers know that Locust Radio producer and fellow Locust Collective member Alexander Billet has a new book out from 1968 Press, Shake the City, Experiments in Space and Time, Music and Crisis. This book deals with many things, including the alienation and hyper-individualization of the musical or oral experience in contemporary capitalism, as well as strategies to cut against that atomization, and you should totally check it out. And you can find it at 1968press.co.uk. Congratulations, Alex. Uh, also, for our listeners in Southern Illinois, on Sunday, October 30th, the day before Halloween, Surgeon, the Southern Illinois Reproductive Justice Network, is having a party-slash-mutual aid fundraiser at Born-Again Labor Museum from 2 to 8. There's going to be music, movies, tabletop role-playing games, food, and of course, booze. So if you drink too much on Saturday night, you can come buy balm for some hair of the dog and get yourself correct. And help us fundraise for social reproduction mutual aid in Southern Illinois. Uh, go to balm, uh, go to bornagainlabor.com for more information. Another announcement, and I swear we'll be through these announcements in a second for our Locust patrons and followers. We are actually putting Imago number two, our nonfiction annual, together. We've got a great cover, which is an image of a painting collage that Tish and I did. No prime delivery on Big Rock Candy Mountain that was then glitched by Omnia Soul, who is uh, one of the producers of Locust Radio. Imago 2 is going to include two pieces by the Arelos Combat League, an article by myself titled Commune versus Cathedral versus Bazaar, a roundtable round table discussion between Tish, um, Anupam Roy and I on, on politics, an article by Frank Basile, reviews by Adam Ray Akins, Axel Fair Schultz and others, an article by Alexander Billet and more. Um, and honestly, if we didn't have day jobs, it would already be out. So it's coming. We, we promise. So today's episode is our Halloween slash October episode. And we're going to be focusing our discussion on folk horror, folk devils, cryptids, and other gothic folk realisms, good and bad, reactionary and critical, because it's the spooky season and all that. Folk horror needs some disambiguation, of course, because it is both a thing that occurs organically in folktales, ghost stories, etc., as well as a genre of cinema and television informed by that folklore. And this could be, like, contradictory because in some folk uh, horror genre work, the horror is the folk. Um, and this can echo the fear of, like, the modern bourgeois person confronted with the proletarian or the rural, a fear that goes back to primitive accumulation in capitalism particularly the enclosures and colonization. And in this way, folk horror can be related to the sociological concept of folk devils, people who are made monstrous by the dominant narratives of society, 
made monstrous by different aspects of like a white gender normative bourgeois ideology. At the same time, folklore can reflect some alternate aspirations for revenge, justice, liberation, or both subaltern aspirations as well as bourgeois norms. And of course, these stories often manifest a kind of psychological sublation of both social and existential being. Uh, we thought we'd actually start off with a few folk horror stories or folk horror adjacent stories, starting with the story of a spectral hound named Old Black Eyes, as told by Connie Bowling, uh, about an area known as Baker uh, Rocks in the Black Mountains of North Carolina. Old Black Eyes is said to be the spirit of a, a guy named Jim Baker, who lived uh, uh, at the rocks in a cave and was regarded as a witch with supernatural powers by the local mountain people. According to legend, Jim Baker sold his soul to the devil. The devil turned Baker's pupils unnaturally black as a sign of hell's claim on his soul. Uh, on his death, Baker was said to uh, take the spirit of a devil dog, identifiable by the large black pupils of its eyes that people feared to approach, believing it was surrounded in black magic. It was said the only way to get rid of old black eyes was to draw its picture, pin it to a tree, and then shoot it with a gun. Uh, but like one of the interesting parts, I mean, I really like the idea of like putting a picture on a tree and then shooting it with a gun as some sort of ritual. Uh, but one of the other interesting parts to me is that before Baker dies, he got into this feud with the locals who don't like the fact he's living up in the mountains with a bunch of women in a cave. So they come to kill him for being a witch or whatever. And then he did what was it's called ringing the woods. He rung the woods, basically cursing the forest. So every time the locals try to hunt, they can't kill anything like they're aiming point blank at a buck or a rabbit or whatever. And they just can't kill anything. Nothing, nothing ever dies. So one of the locals casts a counter spell to kill Jim Baker. And as Baker approaches death, one of the women who lives with him negotiates a truce. Basically the townsfolks agree to, and the locals agree to let him live. And he unrings the forest to let them hunt again. I love that so much. Uh, the second story uh, we wanted to start with is that of the Pennsylvania Squonk, a cryptid that first appears in the writing of a 1910 book, Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods. And I have to thank my brother for introducing me to this thing. Um, it was described as having a it's retiring disposition. Oh, sorry. It's your brother's <laughs> no, it's, favorite cryptid, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, I, I'm, I have a soft spot for it, too. It's, it's really wonderful. Uh, so it's described as having a retiring disposition, generally traveling about at twilight and dusk because of its misfitting skin, which is covered with warts and moles. It is always unhappy. Hunters who are good at tracking are able to follow a squonk by its tear-stained trail, for the animal weeps constantly. Uh, when, considered, when cornered uh, and escape seems impossible, or when surprised and frightened, it may even dissolve itself into tears. Squonks are purportedly slowest on moonlit nights as they wanted to avoid seeing their own reflections in the water. They had webbed toes. Uh, their Latin name is Lacrimacorpus uh, dissolvens, after the Latin words for tear, body, and dissolve. It's, it's, it's kind of like the dysmorphia cryptid, right? Like, yeah, so you know, cute. Yeah. Well, the third story we wanted to share at the top of the show uh, comes from 1955. Uh, the, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, a supposed encounter with alien beings in Christian County, Kentucky. 
Um, and while this is a, quote, alien story, it also has a lot in common with a broader regional mythology about Kentucky cave goblins who act sort of like mothmen as harbingers warning of impending disasters, especially mine and cave disasters. So anyway, on August 21st, uh, 1955, five adults and seven kids show up at the police station in Hopkinsville claiming the aliens from a spaceship are attacking their farmhouse and they've been shooting at the aliens for like two hours. So the cops thinking that there's a shootout between different groups of actual humans send a bunch of state troopers and even military police from Fort Campbell down to the farm. All the cops see are bullet holes and spent shell casings. No aliens, no bodies. So they leave. Uh, Later, the family takes off in the middle of the night, claiming that they'd come back. And like ever since then, Kentucky cave goblins are like a kind of a warning about disaster. So it's a good thing that the family took off. They probably would have been killed otherwise. Uh, A lot of folks say that these, you know, aren't really aliens. These are subterranean species that are attuned to an impending crisis because of evolving in the precarious caves of Kentucky. So Tish, like, so we've like picked these three stories. Obviously there's hundreds, thousands of stories like this. Mm. Like what, you know, like, I mean, and they express like psychological and social realities for these folks, like hostility of the environment yeah like what what would you do with these if we if we we're gonna like turn them into like you know socialist critical or realist sort of stories or creatures well i mean obviously like ringing the woods is something that sticks out right like i i mean there's an obvious parallel with like striking and stuff there but like yeah hmm I really love the ringing the woods thing. And it's like, uh, it's like the woods withholding its sustenance from the, the, the town folks for being like judgmental and weird or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also, I sort of appreciate that. Um, cause usually there's some like, you know, and, and the people prevailed against the evil, witch. like, I, I appreciate that they came to an understanding with one another actually. Yeah. Like that's a, that's, that's, yeah. It's kind of like a live and let live for the hill folk at the conclusion, right? Yeah. Which is, which is just as much a lesson, I think, as the power of, of ringing the woods. Yeah. What about the squonk? I just, I mean, I have such a soft spot for like the broken kicked thing that like hates itself. Um, I, I, there's an obvious, I don't know, like, I, I, I wanted to have, like, a phoenix quality, like, maybe it doesn't just dissolve into, into a puddle, right? Like, maybe it, maybe it can reform after it does as well. Yeah, it's interesting that self-defense is, like, dissolving itself in despair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not at all re- relatable. I mean, obviously, we pick these... <laughs> We picked these three, but like there's there's like like I said, hundreds, thousands of others you can pick, and you can also like read like some of the stuff like like you can read the Kentucky Cave Goblins as sort of like warnings of like disaster. You know, especially when it's involving um, miners and stuff like that in some right. of the stories. Um, so it has can have a class conscious sort of realist aspect to it, but it also can be read against like this sense that you're not supposed to be here, you know, the colonial history or the other criminal histories that 
were foundational, like in uh, the settling um, of the United States. Um, right. Like one of the things that we didn't bring up about the story about uh, the dark eyed devil dog feller um, is that supposedly he, the story goes that he made a deal with the devil at an old Native American burial ground, right? Mm. Um, which is yeah. problematic, of course, um, in a number of ways. Um, not the least of which, you know, like from my understanding, like most Native American spiritual beliefs didn't include like a, a you know, Manichaean devil concept or, or, or whatever. But, uh, right. But also that sense of you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be here. And you see that a lot in a lot of the, the folk horror. Um, mm. of like we're not supposed to be here, and but it's doubly over for like the urban bourgeois person, and you see that where the folk are the horror, and obviously things like Deliverance, but also a number of seventies mm. horror movies, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean the thing that I mean the thing that I always think about when I think of the cave goblins too is that like. Uh, a lot of the, the the way people know about them a lot a lot of the time there is because like when they were kids they would hear like the sound of some weird like screaming in the woods that would be like luring them there and the story was constantly passed down from their parents don't follow the scream don't go into the caves especially not the caves where you hear the scream and it's not because the things will will hurt you it's because they're warning you it wasn't like the scream was going to hurt you but it was, I, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Stay out of the caves. That's where your, you know, relatives died. Right. Yeah. Of course, we did a, early on during the beginning of the pandemic, we did a painting collage of mm-hmm. Kentucky cave goblins in response to uh, when they ended the uh, lockdown in Kentucky, right? And it was yeah. like, basically, the Kentucky cave goblins were like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, listen to us, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get every, everybody killed. Um, but of course that wasn't a major concern. Um, so can you think of any other cryptids or folk tales you'd like to share at this first section of the, the episode, Fish? Hmm. Um, I mean, what were some of the others that I had on the list up here? Well, you pivoted uh, off a lot of these stories in Stink Ape. I mean, literally, well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Stink Ape is well, based like, on a narration from a Stink Ape. Well, that, that's true. That's true as well. Also, I guess in reality, I, I wouldn't have even come to Stink Ape if I hadn't first started writing as, uh, as the Kentucky Cave Goblins with a Stink Ape. So... Yeah. No, I mean stink apes are really big feet are really cool, right? It's big feet as a as a plural, right? Yeah, it's a it's a swamp bigfoot. So basically because yeah. Bigfoot's traditionally like in the Pacific Northwest, stink apes are like Appalachian and Southern big feet, right? Like right. they, they On smell the bad because they're yeah. in the swamp. Like the the local stink yeah. ape where we live, um, yeah. in southern Illinois is the big muddy monster. Um Right. Now, of course, we actually know that in the late 60s, a guy dressed up in a Bigfoot costume and was hanging around the Big Muddy River while teenagers were smoking dope and, like, making out in their cars in the park in Murfreesboro, Illinois. 
like we're pretty sure we know <laughs> like even who that guy is right like right the local right. uh local uh you know uh amateur historians and so on um but it's become a thing you know um lo- locally so anyway so there's this like stink ape thing which is is interesting because it's like a wild human it's a primate that hasn't been mapped and discovered so it cuts against this mm. sort of like sense that everything is mapped and known you know like yeah. uh like the joke in uh that futurama episode about bigfoot uh big feet can be seen like leaping in and out of out of focus areas and so on which i think is part of the appeal right that it's not reducible to like i mean how do you you know aside from having like a bigfoot festival like they're doing in some small towns around here how do you make money off of it it's not a lot of money to make off of the existence of bigfoot um which is obviously bigfoot doesn't actually exist don't say that well, we don't know. <laughs> no. No. I mean, no. I mean, there. I. I mean, no matter how many. Yeah. I mean, they. They keep trying to like make Discovery Channel shows about it too, and they suck. It's just like a bunch of middle class dudes in camo tromping about in the woods and shit. Yeah. No. I mean. Yeah. Well, you so they approach. They approach these folk stories and cryptids and so on, the same obnoxious way that. Uh, um fundamentalist christians as well as like humorless atheists approach religion in general like exactly they they look they don't understand the actual logic of it culturally socially existentially politically so they reduce it down to a fact game you know is it Hmm. literally true or not rather than why did people make it up or what were the experiences Hmm. people had that led them to think this thing and what does it mean for people in the world like the ufo thing like we talked about before like what is a ufo is a secular visitation you know right it's a Mm. secular version of being visited by a biblically accurate angel um Mm. you know it's it's this connection to the universe or to some aspect of being that um isn't being resolved or discussed or talked about in the functions of everyday life as they currently exist in some ways it's a protest you know the very concept of it's a protest against limiting yourself within the confines of this banal realism of everyday life Mm. i think they probably i i think bigfoot is probably my absolute favorite cryptid oh yeah yeah i'm pretending i didn't know that (laughs) i know i know well i think well i think probably you maybe are getting at some of the reasons why right i think i think it's because it's like this this unknown which is sort of the thing that i have right where i i I want people to read my stuff but i don't want to be known i think that's you know yeah right it's 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 this unknown like missing mystery link thing right it's yeah yeah what's your favorite cryptid Hmm. I don't know. I really like in the squonk, but uh, <laughs> yeah. What What is my favorite? Group? I don't. I don't know. I think I picked one out the other day, didn't I? Didn't didn't we talk about this the other day? I well, I think I don't know that you actually picked one. I think we talked about it, but uh, I mean, you could save it for the paid half. All right, I'll think about it. I'm not sure. Like, uh, 
You know, because like visually, I really like the drawings of Chubacabras, Prime Mothman, or the Kentucky Cave yeah. Goblins. One of the Harbinger cryptids that, like, uh, you know, uh, warned uh, the disaster. This reminds me when I when I asked my brother about, I was like, you know, what what sort of cryptids you've you know you pagan of my of my family? What sort of cryptids? Since you have your finger on the pulse of this stuff, could you suggest for me? <laughs> And yeah. the first thing he sent me was a fucking Mothman statue. And he's like, look at the cakes on this thing. Everyone's sure that whoever made this wants to fuck the Mothman. I was like, well, that's not exactly what I asked, but thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it gives me more insight into Rich's thought pattern. <laughs> uh, but, well, I think we're going to uh, start transitioning into talking about uh, folk devils in a couple minutes, but it's actually pretty much time for our second music break. And uh, so think about like, uh, you know, we'll think about uh, folk devils and their relationship to, to folk horror and so on. But we're going to be listening to Omnia Soul's Rod Labars from their 2022 album, 89 Volvo. And you can check out their music at Omniasol. Sorry, Omniasol. That's O M N I A S O L, and then Art A R T. dot Bandcamp. dot com. So Omniasolart. dot Bandcamp. dot com. Uh, so let's listen to eighty nine Volvo. Feel so strange 
Welcome back. That was music for our very own Omnia Soul. So I'm hoping we can, as I said before the, the music break, that we can shift our discussion a bit from folk tales <clears throat> towards folk devils, and in particular start with the example of witches. There seems to be some debate about how many women were actually murdered and killed in Europe over the 200 or so years which in which witch trials and executions were common. Some historians say 35,000 to 50,000. Silvia Federici argues it was hundreds of thousands. And Federici is a Marxist feminist scholar who wrote a book called Caliban and the Witch. Um, and also some very interesting books on the reenchantment of art that, that I'm reading right now. But uh, anyway, about the witch hunts, um, uh, she argues that there was actually a substantial um, number. A lot of the witch hunts, Federici notes, uh, occurred at the same time as the initial primitive accumulation of capital. The enclosures in Europe where peasants were drawn off the land, the enactment of the bloody laws against beggars, uh, where folks would be executed or deported for minor crimes. Basically, the witch trials were in between the late medieval ages when Western European peasants had decent standards of living and some guarantee of economic rights, etc., through the period in which the access to land was liquidated and they were forced to become industrial laborers. This is also the same time period as colonization in the Americas and the beginning of the slave trade. And, and what Federici argues is that the attacks on witches, the attack on women, was part of weakening any possible resistance amongst peasants by undermining women leaders in the community, as well as undermining like local folk traditions. And entire bureaucratic state efforts were put into place. Magistrates went from village to village, sometimes with lists of women already made out to deal with the quote-unquote witch problem. And this happened in both Catholic and Protestant countries and areas. Both Catholic and Protestant um, officials engaged in these witch hunts. Federici cites Mikhail Tosig's work on the devil and commodity fetishism in South America from 1980 that ties devil belief to 
major shifts in modes of production. Because of major shift in production, subsistence farming to wage labor, for example, also undoes the metaphysical order. The accused were often the poorest peasants or the poorest free laboring women. The accusers tended to be wealthy and powerful. So Federici writes, in England, the witches were usually old women on public assistance or women who survived by going from house to house begging for bits of food or a pot of wine or milk. And if they were married, their husbands were day laborers. But most often they were widows or lived alone. Their poverty stands out in the confession, she writes. It was in times of need that the devil appeared to them to assure them that from now on they should never want. Although the money he would give them, that the devil would give these women on occasions, would then turn to ashes, a detail perhaps related to the experience of superinflation, she writes, common at the time. As Federici argues, the ruling class fear of the lower class was expressed as a fear of magic. She writes, The battle against magic has always accompanied the development of capitalism to this very day. Magic is premised on the belief that the world is animated, unpredictable, and that there is a force in all things so that every event is interpreted as the expression of an occult power that must be deciphered and bent to one's will. Magic was also an obstacle to the rationalization of the work process, she continues, and a threat to the establishment of the principle of individual responsibility. Above all, magic seemed to form a refusal. Magic seemed a form of refusal of work, of insubordination, and an instrument of grassroots resistance to power. The world had to be disenchanted in order to be dominated. Now, obviously, there's a lot of folk devils historically, um, often situated in particular geographies based on particular histories. And sometimes the folk devil image or narrative or sign is reappropriated by those who has been to demonize. That's been a major cultural strategy of oppressed people for a long time. And of course, the creation of folk devils is still happening. For example, right now around the accusation that queer people are all grooming children in a manner that echoes the ritual abuse hysteria of the 1980s, as well as medieval blood libel that accused Jewish folks of kidnapping Gentile children for uh, rituals and so on. So you see this constant reproduction of folk devils at multiple levels, even the concept of like, for example, white trash, quote unquote, is like an attempt to create folk devils. Um, And of course, this is something that we've talked about um, at Locust as part of our strategy of critical Mm -hmm. realism is like turning these folk devils around, right? Um, Sometimes directly or sometimes in like in a realist you know, idiom is something like Anupam has talked a lot about. I know it's something that you do in your writing, Tish. Um, yeah. So, like, it's. I think there. It is interesting to me the, the the space between folk horror, you know, and folk devils, because again, that thing about is it the folk? Are they? Are, is are the folk quote unquote in possession of the stories, or the idea mm. images and narratives, or are they the subject? of someone else's horror story. This is, I I feel, I, you know, honestly, this is making me want to write about like a cryptid that eats babies. (laughs) So the baby murder Memorial museum writing and imagery wasn't. All right. Like, well, maybe, 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 maybe there's a cryptid involved. Maybe, maybe there's, maybe there's a cryptid at the heart of it. Right. Maybe there's some created, monster thing 
Can you Sorry. explain? <laughs> can you explain your thinking about this cryptid and what would it be called? Uh, you know, I'm not. <laughs> uh, hmm. I don't. I just. I just. I just have the word infanticide beast in my head, and that's not. That's not good enough. I'm not really sure what I would call it, but I like the idea of some some like weird, almost like misshapen, lumbering, like six-legged beast that with like a long sort of elephant proboscisy nose thing that slides <laughs> like through windows. And st- yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because yeah. like, I think it is just like to, to, to take apart a little bit, like what kind of folk devils there, there are. Cause the modern yeah. liberal bourgeois folk devils, that are created by the modern bourgeois to be like right. fears of um, some kind of irrationality or lack of order beneath the thing, you know, um, the world hmm. that they've built, uh, you know, some sort of object revenge, um, you know, from the world. Whereas the far right's folk devils tend to basically be like them projecting what they do you know, um, on other people. Um, so like the grooming thing, right. Um, there's obviously far more examples of that from the far right than anywhere else or like the kidnapping children thing when, you know, children are being kidnapped at at the border. And of course, as we know, children are still being kidnapped by ice all over the country. Um, um, yeah. You know, uh, not just at the border, like the most egregious visible stuff that Trump was doing might have been suspended or attenuated. But politicians from both parties for years have detained children without their parents and then forced yeah. the children to uh, basically rat out their own parents in order to be sent home. So, like, there's different kinds. There's the uh, fascist created folk devils. Then there's the liberal created folk devils. And then there's like the response of like working and oppressed people themselves to these to these things, and they're not they're all very different, even if they might superficially look the same um, when you're like searching movies on Netflix or something. So I'm just ma- I'm making note. This has made me change a little bit about this baby eating cryptid. Ah. Like it. Uh... It um it it is written as evil, but it's actually rescuing children from like abusive, like evangelical Christian abusive parents. Yes. Or or the real equivalent of that on planet Zoltar or whatever. Right, right. So there are constant stories passed down about how you should never go with this with this like nose thing that slides through your window but actually you should absolutely go with the nose thing that slides through your window because it's going to take you to a better place yeah i like that it's kind of like an inverted peter pan kind of thing yeah yeah well i'm always i always want to lean into when they make us monsters right but i also want to like show that the monsters that they're making us is a reflection of like as we were saying on the monsters that they actually are right it reminds me yeah. of like the inversion you did around most science fiction uh, time travel tropes that the real reason they don't want you to go back in time is that you might undo the world they made. Right. Like, yeah, it's like yeah, flips those... it on its head in this trickster like way. Right. So it's like it's like ringing the forest of cultural signs. Yeah. 
It's it's my oppositional defiant disorder meeting like my genuine curiosity at how I could actually better time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't. Sometimes I don't understand why more people don't have oppositional defiant disorder. I this, this shit's not right. <laughs> you know, honestly, me too. But yeah. <laughs> it's like, how can you go along with this? How, how can you? How can well, you? It's like to- how. How has enough not happened? How 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 have they not lied to you enough times that anything they say to you isn't immediately suspect? Well, I think it is for like probably a good plurality, if not majority, of working class people, right? You know, yeah. it's uh, but the question for them, like for the bulk of folks, a bulk of us, is like, what can you actually do about it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, whereas, unfortunately, some of our quote unquote leaders in the movement coming from more middle class and academic backgrounds think they can be too clever by half um, to, uh, mm. you know, do things like prove the left can govern and dumbasseries like that. But, <sighs> but the anteater that kidnaps babies for their own good, right? Mm-hmm. That anteater is not concerned with, uh, proving it can govern (laughs) it doesn't give (laughs) a shit right because it's like cutting with the 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 folk the folk controlled you know um horror um as opposed to the horror where we are the horror itself and of course part of that's position right like Mm -hmm. you know like um like one maybe one of the things the uh cryptid that steals baby does it steals babies do's does this did it's like <laughs> yeah. you know take yeah. children away from horrible reactionary bourgeois parents so that they can become real people yeah 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 it's it's rescuing rescuing uh not just like abusive christian family it, it's yeah yes it's it's a note then, made. Yeah, the the cryptid anteater thing has this Christ-like aspect to it because you let it in and it saves your soul. Oh, yeah. oh, what should we name it? Mm. Okay, sorry, <laughs> Jeff with a no, G, no, not of G. course. Oh, yeah, with a G. Jeff, yeah. Jim, Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Cri- Christmas. Anyway, I, I, oh my god. I don't know. Uh, sorry. So I yeah. really like this idea. You know. Yeah. Um, I feel like I came up with an idea earlier today. I wanted to make something out of, but I can't quite remember it. But it was, it was all of these lines. Uh, uh, yeah. I think I messaged you about it on the on the internet. I, don't know. I yeah. was it yesterday. I don't. I don't know. So, are you gonna write this story? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna write this story. This, but, but I, now I'm thinking of also like how how can I write stuff with us being that I want to write something where we're the monsters in a in a more intense way too, though. Well, so, there's something that I want to bring up, like that. Uh, you know, we're yeah. the monsters we've been waiting for. Yeah. Uh, you know, if that makes sense. You know. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I know I had an idea that I wrote down that I wanted to do something with, but I can't remember where. 
you know i love that so much we are the monsters we've been waiting for like that's that's fantastic i want I that mean, on a shirt and i want to write something about that maybe we should uh get something in uh you know <laughs> in the next the next locust won't be out for halloween it'll be out in november um probably later november or something like that so right. but uh we are the maybe we can write something up for the uh the surgeon party slash fundraiser at uh at uh at balm you know we're the i think that's a good idea for... yes i know i sent you something that was absolutely really important and you know all i see are poop emojis <laughs> and memes who you sent know, you poop emoji you sent me a poop emoji I was because I, I told you I had to like press that poop emoji when I bought something at the discount tobacco store. They had a, the yeah. the button that said "push here" and worn off, you know. So yeah, like, that's why uh, it's exasperated poop poop emoji that I sent you. Right. So I, and then I after I pressed the button, I looked at my finger like there would actually be shit on my finger for for some <laughs> ridiculous reason that I nobody wants to the human mind anymore. We were talking about human Sisyphus. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to Sisyphus anymore. We should. We need to make yeah. make that because no, you know, nobody wants to work anymore. Nobody wants to endlessly push a boulder up a hill for all eternity anymore. You know, that's probably my second favorite meme. <laughs> I did. I did like. You know, I know we're degenerating a little bit here as we get into the next music break, but. Uh, that uh, trailer park trailer park boys meme with uh, they're talking about uh, Gregor Samsa. He's like, it's messed up. He wakes up. He's a bug, and all I can think about is work. <laughs> this isn't good, Julian. It says right here he turned into a beetle, and the first thing he thought about was his job. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I like your yeah. the the cryptid anteater thing. We need to we need to do a thing with that, and uh, we'll we are the monsters we've been waiting for. Yeah. Ah, uh, well. That said, it's about time for our next music break. And we're going to be listening to Hans Predator's Success. That's S U C K dash S, or sorry, S U C K hyphen C E S S from their 2018 album, Bebop Losers. You can check out their music at handspredator.bandcamp.com. <laughs>
Welcome back again. That was Hans Predator with success. So what are we discussing now? Well, I'd like to talk about ghosts now, specifically hauntology and the Gothic. Of course, we've talked on the show about hauntology before, as discussed by Mark Fisher, sort of the idea of being haunted by lost futures, particularly utopian futures like communism. Fisher, of course, position this hauntology against capitalist realism, the sense there can be no alternative to capitalism, as was famously put by Margaret Thatcher. But the concept of hauntology actually starts with Jock Derrida, most famous for his idea of deconstruction. And a key part of the idea of deconstruction is that whenever a concept or a word is created, you automatically create the opposite concept or word or idea. So when you say something is bad, you're automatically saying something else is good. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Derrida did a series of lectures and wrote a book called Specters of Marx, pivoting off the famous opening line of the Communist Manifesto, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. And he coined the term hauntology as a play on the word ontology. And evidently this pun works even better in French um, because the words are even closer. An ontology is the area of metaphysics that deals with the nature of being. And he takes issue with Western triumphalism, although not in exactly a Marxist way, but he takes issue with Western triumphalism, in particular, uh, Francis Fukuyama's whole end of history bit, which is borrowed heavily from uh, Hegel. And Derrida argues, in essence, I think that <clears throat> basically by declaring Marx dead, the Western bourgeoisie is immediately creating an undead Marx that will haunt it. He's saying basically, fools, you've conjured your own object revenge. So Mark Fisher takes this concept of ontology later in the 2010s. Um, and for him, I think it's more phenomenological. It's about the experience of non-capitalist subjects moving through the world without an alternative sense of the future from capitalism. So the ghosts of non-capitalist lost futures take on this melancholic meaning, as well as a possible route of salvage. Although Fisher doesn't get into the salvage aspect as much you get that more with authors like Evan Calder Williams. And what I think is becoming clear is just as there was a materialist basis to the witch hunts that we were talking about before in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, there's a materialist basis to the hauntological. It's not just an echo of the past or a sort of deconstructive word game, but a conjuring of lost futures due to the material and ideological failures of the present. The ghosts of modernity, as we've talked about, you know, many times become modernist eldritch gods, good and bad, summoned from the depths. So you can't make ends meet. You multiply that by 100 million fellow workers. A plague kills millions of us, over a million in the U.S. alone. Millions more people are wounded by the plague with long COVID, maybe permanently. Uh, these material conditions and the failure of the political center to respond to them bring these ghosts from the past into sharper focus. And this starts to make the ghosts real. Millions of people become socialists, thousands of people become Marxists, and so on. But of course, the hauntological is contested because there are good and bad ghosts. Um, there's the ghost of Lucy Parsons, the ghost of the Haymarket Martyrs, the ghosts of Communards and Black Panthers. There's the ghosts of partisan anti-fascists, the ghost of Rosa Luxemburg, Big, Big Bill Haywood, Trotsky, Hubert Harrison, Walter Benjamin, the ghosts of the Flint sit-down strikers, and so on. But there are also the ghosts of fascism, colonization, slavery. There are the ghosts of Cecil Rhodes and Mussolini, 
of plantation overseers and the ghosts of the, the Raj. So to switch from elder gods to kaiju to torture my metaphor, society has summoned both socialist and fascist monsters from the past. But unlike with the kaiju, we're the monsters ourselves. We can't like just let them fight like in the movies. We have to fight because we're the monsters, as I said before, you know, that we talked about before that we've been waiting for. So there are other ways I think we, in a materialist sense, are becoming ghosts, like soldiers waiting for battle. We're already dead, living on borrowed time. Our future selves are already basically been killed by climate change, fascism, pandemics, war, or poverty. Um, that being was expressed, I think, you know, in the, the poem by Mike Leinenweaver, which we opened the show with today, right? Like, um, I think I'm dying. It's It's not a joke, you know. Keep, keep to yourself. It doesn't feel like I'm dying, maybe, when I'm, you know, at home um, in bed mm-hmm. with my partner or whatever. But I think this this kind of makes the tendency towards passivity, you know, towards theory without a clear subject, toward uncritical electoralism, toward a method of putting propaganda first before actual organizing among Marxist academics, reformists, and sectarians, even more frustrating because. Waiting for better objective conditions is, in this context, a suicide of Marxism as actuality. Instead of strengthening the Marxist specter or ghost, we're sort of participating in a bourgeois exorcism. Um, so I think the ontology, the ontological, is is also a revenge of the centrality of class to Marxism, which, as you know, Lenin's described as the theory and practice of working class revolution. What is resurrecting Marx isn't shiny trains and false communist societies like China. Or that for some reason people think young Stalin was attractive. It's not the latest issue of Socialist Alternative or the latest academic Marxist paper, though I'm not I don't have anything against those last two things per se. People should read Socialist Alternative, and there's a lot of good Marxist papers. But it definitely isn't the latest sellout social democrat who fails to get elected that's been resurrecting the Marxist ghost. These don't. These aren't the things that are doing it. What is resurrecting, resurrecting Marx is working class subjectivity being constrained and deformed by capital, and it's kind of like a primal scream of our class shattering the veil. The class has summoned the Marxist specter, I think. And of course, by that I don't mean Marx himself or academic Marxism, but the class, the movement of a of class conscious working class life. Mm. So. What do you think of them ghosts? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I right, what's what's yeah, what's waking people up is that shit is worse. Is that things are tighter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really I really really like this. Like I I've been like putting up locus submission stuff uh on campus and stuff and the thing that i always write is the thing that stuck with me like haunted by lost futures like i know that this is the the war um the war uh edition the war uh locust war copy whatever i can't the next issue of locust review issue issue jesus christ i'm a writer um that that's the that's the thing that's been sticking out to me and i think that from what i've noticed from the reaction to it being written on the board too is that it's it's um it's sticking with other people too like yeah it feels like yeah haunted by lost futures that's the best way that i've heard it put
I mean, it's lots of lost future. It's not like just our collective lost future. It's also hundreds of millions of individuals having lost futures, yeah. right? Because there's the lost future of like, you know, genuine communist democ- democratic society, right? But there's also like the lost future of what you were promised or what or what was intimated to you about your own life, right? Like, Absolutely, yeah. Um, the sheer number of things that are becoming redundant. They simply don't need as many of us to do the things that we've been trained to do. Um, even as they, you know, to what extent they're falsely complaining about the labor shortage um, because they're, you know, because by at the, at the more entry level stuff, but. No, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, they are a thousand percent replacing us. Yeah. But not in the right wing version of it. No, 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 not even, not even in the, in the like weird, they're replacing us with robots alarmism about the future way, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though it looks like that, right? Like, uh, no, in fact, they're not even replacing us. It's just that they actually don't need as many of us. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But that does feed the right-wing narratives. And it's one of the things that's frustrated me about um, in terms of left cultural stuff, like this sort of realism that seems to hold on to the idea that a gritty exposure of the truth will... Um, wake people up to a reality they're already overly familiar with. Um, yeah. Or, um, like I said, the passivity of waiting for the moment, the class wakes up and then we can be the left wing of it or, or, or something like that. Or the passivity of voting for another person who's going to betray you and vote for police funding, you know? Um, yeah. Less than two years after the black lives matter uprisings. Um, disappointing and, yeah yeah so i i i think gets back again to this like imagining against the stultifying absence of possibility at both an individual and collective level at the same time which is one of the things like again that like your time travel um manipulate trope <laughs> manipulations get to in stink ape hmm. and um and of course some of the things we try to do in, with bomb and trying to resurrect things from the past you know, um, yeah. as conceptual art gestures. But, also, yeah. I think part of part of the thing that I try to do with Stink Ape is get a, a like I I really I'm also particularly annoyed by the idea that there's just like there's one moment that's going to wake everything up. Like it's not a movie, and that's right. not even how good stories operate. You know, like I hate that. I hate that so much. Like it's obviously a multitude of moments giving strength to one another, and the fact that that's not like a thing that people realize is annoying and the problem as well. Well, it's like uh, the concept of overdetermination in science. And uh, uh, there was some debate about whether the concept of overdetermination was dialectical or not, whether it was Marxist or not. And there were certainly like um, some like post-structuralists and so on who used it that way. But not really. I mean, the, 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 the process by which class consciousness happens and, and is overdetermined um, by, by a whole process of 
things that happen, and there's, as Raymond Williams says, there's problems with this concept of base and superstructure, the base being the material and the superstructure being the cultural. But to happen in both what you could call the base and the, the superstructure um, over time. And the contradiction between the ideological justifications and promises of this society versus what's actually happening is is the thing that resurrects the ghost of marxism but also the ghost of fascism unfortunately um right like people have started looking for explanations in a way that's conditioned by social class and race and gender um and everything else so working class people and oppressed people tend to go left and middle class white cis heteronormative people tend to go right but they're looking for an explanation of why this thing isn't working. And right. they, and, it, and it's like Marx talked about, like in the 18th Brumaire, when he, he's talking about like revolution and people put on the clothes of the last revolution rather than the clothes of the next one. So right. people go to the ghosts um, to learn how to deal with this thing that looks sort of like the thing the ghosts dealt with. Mm. Yeah. So what ghost story are you going to come up with? Well, that's a good question. But uh, obviously, I, I don't know. I want, I really want there to, I, you know, honestly, I had a thought earlier today of like, I don't want World War Three to happen, but I'm starting to think about wanting to write World War Three, And I'm actually starting to think I want to write about World War Three being subverted by like an army of ghosts. I like that. I had this idea of like that I worked on a couple years ago, like uh, of like uh, this, the Posadas aliens come and they resurrect all the comrades from the past, you know. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're you're walking around Chicago, and the Haymarket Martyrs are walking around, you know, um, yeah. you know the Black Panthers who were killed by the police. You're in Paris; it's full of the ten to twenty thousand communards that were executed uh, mm. by the Versailles Army. Uh, and so on. So I like this idea of ghosts stopping the war. One of the things in, the, in that sort of like conceptual exercise I did was um, the ghosts show up right as the bombs of World War Three are falling, uh, or the yeah. aliens show up right as the bombs are falling, and they freeze the bombs in the air. And I wrote this like little vignette about um, a strip club in Milwaukee that had these this like a uh, nuclear bomb suspended above it and it collected snow in the winter and the springs birds built nests on it <laughs> and so on. And to, 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 yeah. to a painting of that, uh, it's actually old, uh, old uh, ecumenical preacher guy bought it um, years ago. But uh, so I really, yeah, yeah. I really like the idea of ghosts stopping a war. I also like that, you know, like, cause your idea of, and the idea other comrades have had, and, you know, stuff like the Sebastian Schuler's talked about, about class fan fiction or class revenge fan fiction. Yeah. Sort of like doing a fan fiction that rewrites the future history of the next catastrophe. Um, but giving us agency um, and changing the outcome. And this reminds me of what one of our comrades, and we can't talk about it because it's not published, wrote a, uh, wrote, wrote a, a, a horror novel about a, a civil war between communists and fascists in which the 
fascists and the communists were supernatural monsters. Um, they kind of did something similar to that, like rewrote the bloody history of the future, but put us into it in a way that we've been denied being in some of the recent history as actors. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, I, that's a really, really good book. And that's probably partially informing. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, I should, I should do. Yeah. Cause I, that's what I've, I think, you know, obviously like reading the news is probably why I'm thinking about world war three in the way that I am. And yeah, it would probably also alleviate some of my anxiety about, yeah, no, I should do that. I should uh, write about like, us and and the maybe we are the ones that resurrect the ghosts hmm. Hmm. i don't know i don't know yeah i like that i'm also connecting it up with the, the cryptid that steals babies i think maybe the cryptid steals enough of those babies and them being real humans allows them to resurrect the ghosts i don't know Oh my god! <laughs> but maybe that's too Byzantine, you know. That that's why that's why you're a better writer than I, than I am. Uh. Well, I I stand firmly that all of my stuff exists within the same universe because even if it contradicts it itself, fuck it. There are multiple universes in my universe, so. Well, it's yeah, like in I a... think the. Sorry, go ahead. I was just I was just gonna say like yeah. So obviously, I think probably. There will be a moment wherein the baby eater cryptid joins in on the war with the other cryptids. Sorry, sorry. What did you want to say? Oh, I was just gonna say it's it's sort of like in Cervantes and Don Quixote when the titular character is fantasy of living in a you know a world of of chivalry and romance and monsters and so on is interrupted by reality. He always blames the wizard Freston. Right. So so he's tilting at windmills that he thinks are giants. It becomes impossible to pretend any longer that they are actually giants. So he's like, because too many people are there observing reality or, or whatever. And he's damn it, Freston, because the wizard has turned the giants into windmills. You know? um, yeah. And I think that, you know, but there is an act, because again, I, I have that, you know, there's a reason I love that novel. The, the, the romantic rejection of the utilitar- utilitarianization and optimization of everything in the life world, I think is mm. a key part of resistance to, to, to capitalism. And like, despite like the seemingness of everything being able to be art and all this quote, serious television shows and, and so on, really most every day it's being told by another Thomas Gagrind, you know, like the, the headmaster from uh, Hard Times who yells at a little girl because she likes horses, you know, because it's not practical to like horses. You know? Right. He yells at a child for loving an animal. Um, and then makes fun of her for not actually knowing anything about the history of horses or the biology of horses or whatever. Every day is like that. You wake up either anxious because you have too much crap to do um, or with a sense of wonder that is soon destroyed by the reality of daily life around you because daily life turns everybody into gad grinds see this reminds me of a thing that i just learned about in my english romantic poetry class 
fine isolated verisimilitude from Keats where he's like where he's like you know you don't always need to define everything exactly sometimes you could just live in uncertainty and enjoy the thing sometimes as you said in another poem like sometimes the song that you have not heard is the sweetest one right i think that was keats about the urn or some shit um yeah i mean it's related to that old the ancient idea that only the priest keeps the name of god in a particular part of the temple because to name a thing is to deprive it of its misery mystery misery mystery and misery perhaps um and it's not that I'm anti-science or anything, but this idea that everything must be mapped and known. And it's one of the yeah. things that's pissed me off, like actually working on a doctorate, which I did again, so I could read books and have healthcare during the apocalypse. So we could move back here to be close to our families. Um, is this academic impulse to like become masters of everything and take out the mystery and the thing that makes things move, you know? Um, and I keep going back to that thing from the Derek Jermon Wittgenstein movie about the, the philosopher Wittgenstein about, and I can't remember if he's talking to the alien character or what, but like <clears throat> somebody makes a philosophy that's so perfect that takes into account every aspect of everything. And it's so perfect. It's like a sheet of ice or glass. But when you try to walk out onto the philosophy, you just keep falling down because there's no traction, Right. There has to be a sense of, and partly I think that impulse to know everything is anti-democratic also, because Mm. if I have the answers to everything, who needs everybody else? Mm. Maybe I have one answer and it's not even in competition with the other answers, you know, and maybe that's actually something like the political sublime. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So ghosts stop World War Three. We have a cryptid that kind of has an anteater proboscis deal that kidnaps the children of fascists and the bourgeoisie to save their Mm. souls. Mm. Um, And somehow this will come together with the resurrection of all previous generations of the exploited and oppressed. So it's, uh, is there anything you want to add to that, Tish, before we uh, move on? No, I think we're sitting in a good place. I will have to say we're <laughs> sorry that uh, our co-host Laura couldn't be here today. Um, something came up, yeah. but they should be here next time. So it's time for our final music break for the first half of the uh, episode. And we're really happy uh, <clears throat> to have Worthless Scarecrow here. Great, great musicians. Um, I know them. Here's the song called Not from their 2022 album, Not an Unusual Morning. And you can find them at worthlessscarecrow.bandcamp.com. So go buy this stuff, buy the stuff from our other uh, uh, musicians we played. It's Moses and the Prophets. And I want to say thanks to the musicians that let us share their work on this episode and the last episode. Um, and I Really, we pick stuff because we like it. So Omnia Soul, of course, last month's yeah. Pet Mosquito, Worthless Scarecrow, Hans Predator, and of course, Fat Jat Rabbit. We're lining up some more good music for episode 18. This is episode 17-ish? I think so. Yeah, so next episode's 18. So go support these artists, get their albums, listen to the music that is not made by an enslaved corporate algorithm. And don't forget to subscribe to Locust Review and Locust Radio at locustreview.com 
or patreon.com slash locustreview. After the music, we'll have a reading from Locust uh, comrade Leslie Lee to close out the episode. She'll be reading her brilliant poem, Spring, from Locust Review 8. Until next time, comrades. Hasta la victoria siempre. And for our patrons who hear us on the other side of the paywall, like ghosts screaming across the veil. Ah. Or this scarecrow demo not take one.
Don't be scared. I'll braid hyacinths in your hair, and we can run into your ascetic dreams between the rubble of the stars. After all, some say, it's just a crush. It's just a soul-crushing spring. And crushes don't mean anything, only that they are acidic, often laced in parasitic honeysuckle stings. How we surrender or survive as arachnid love zombies depends on what we feed each other for dinner. And I did dream of you, the night of the Scorpio moon. We floated the way gods do in whiskey swimming pools. I gave you a bit of coconut oil. I warmed it between my thighs where my heart beats the strongest. Just a mouthful for the mental clatter. I held your head while you rotated the spindle of extreme uncertainty. In high places, we raised altars and filled our jars with charred viscera. We left our misfortunes to the swallows where they paid their divine homage by adorning our temples with flowers and sorrow. Forgive me. It's a pleasure disease that keeps us free. It's the food we eat and nothing should taste this good. It's the worms and persimmons in summer. And it will pass as worms do. In the meantime, we will watch the setting of 89 suns. Thank you for listening to part one of Locus Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locus Radio, go to patreon.com slash locusreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. This episode of Locus Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell, with music by Fat Jack Rabbit, Hans Predator, Omnia Soul, and Worthless Scarecrow. Locus Radio is produced by Omnia Soul and Alexander Billet.